Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. We're continuing tonight in a worship series we started several weeks ago. It's called Meet the Ancestors. We're working our way, hmm, slowly or way too quickly, through the history of our ancestors in faith as told in the Hebrew Bible. It's an overarching narration of their discovery of the nature and character of God, and we are trusting their testimony to show us what we need to know about the nature and character of God as well. This week, we're jumping way ahead in the story to just one small incident in the life of David, king of Israel. I'm reading from 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 24, through chapter 19, verse 8. Now David was sitting between the two gates. The sentinel went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he looked up, he saw a man running alone. The sentinel shouted and told the king, and the king said, if he's alone, then there are tidings in his mouth. He kept coming and drew near. Then the sentinel saw another man running, and the sentinel called to the gatekeeper and said, see, another man running alone. The king said, he also is bringing tidings. The sentinel said, I think the running of the first one is like the running of Ahimaaz, son of Zadok. The king said, oh, he's a good man. He comes with good tidings. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, all is well. He prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground and said, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord, the king. The king said, is it well with the young man, Absalom? Ahimahaz answered, um, when Joab sent your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I don't know what it was. The king said, turn aside, stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. Then the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good tidings for my lord the king, for the Lord has vindicated you this day, delivering you from the power of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man, Absalom? The Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to do you harm be like that young man. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, oh Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the troops, for the troops heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. 
The troops stole into the city that day as soldiers steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, Today you have covered with shame the faces of all your officers who have saved your life today, and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines for love of those who hate you and for hatred of those who love you. You have made it clear today that commanders and officers are nothing to you. For I perceive that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. So go out at once and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear to God, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than any disaster that has come upon you from your youth until now. So the king got up and took his seat in the gate. The troops were all told, see, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the troops came before the king. Meanwhile, all the Israelites had fled to their homes. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. There's a content consideration for this sermon. There will be multiple mentions, though not explicit, of sexual assault. A content consideration is meant to help you make a good decision about where you are in your own heart and mind and spirit tonight and to take care of yourself. Imagine the committee our ancestors put together to compile popular worship songs for Israel's new hymnal, AKA the Book of Psalms. The songs they included would need to be singable with memorable tunes and lyrics appropriate for corporate worship. They would need to be both theologically sound and existentially relatable reflecting a wide range of the lived experiences of the humans who would be singing them. The collection would have to include then the conveyance of blissed out praise, the exultant poetry for those days when God's presence is palpable, those mornings when every bird and breeze are whistling a, new, a tune of new mercies, like Psalm 98, an old favorite. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing God's praises. And the hymnal would require a hefty selection of minor key tunes for the seasons of life that truly suck. Seasons of grief and sickness and conflict and need. Like that old chestnut, Psalm 13, how long, O oh Lord, how long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Shifting through the stacks of scores and lyrics, someone would come across the one we now know as the 51st Psalm. What about this one, he'd say, and read out a couple lines. 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. He would not get very far into it before another committee member would have his head in his hands. Seriously, bro? Isn't that the one about being conceived in sin, born guilty, pleading for God to take me back? I mean, is that even really what we think about God, about ourselves? Hard pass from me on that one. Like committees do, this one talks and talks and talks and eventually comes to a compromise. This hymn will be included in the collection, but with a prescript over it, a bit of context to smooth it out, make it relatable. You'll find that prescript to this day in your English translation of the 51st Psalm. Before verse 1, it says, To the leader, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Now, I know you know the story of David going in to Bathsheba. Because I've told it to you a bunch of times. Bathsheba was another person's spouse whom David the king sexually assaulted in a spectacularly small abuse of power. Then, when Bathsheba became pregnant as a result of the rape, David the king had her spouse murdered in a military cover-up and forced her into a marriage that would forever suffer for having been built on exploitation, violence, and lies. The story goes that David was indeed really, really sorry for having done all that, and that part of his penance was to live with the public's knowledge of his deeply personal failings. And this psalm, now known as the 51st, was attached to his season of confession and repentance. And the committee that included this psalm in the collection, well, they knew that this is a real thing that happens to real people. Not for most of us that we steal other people's spouses and have people murdered to cover our tracks, though I have no doubt that some of us have tiptoed right up to that line and seriously considered crossing it before but that we have all done things, things of which we are truly deeply ashamed. We have committed serious violations of love and loyalty that we shudder to remember, wearing guilt like a weighted vest that bends our backs and bows our heads. We are horrified sometimes by our capacity to want what is not ours to want, to take what is not ours to take. And so we need the 51st Psalm. We need to sing or say it together at least once in a while as a reminder that even when we are thoroughly soaked in embarrassment over something truly shitty we've done, whether it was five minutes or five years or five decades ago, even when it feels like the wrongness of that has seeped into our DNA, becoming as much a part of us as our green eyes or our frizzy hair, even then, says the psalm, God stands ready to hear from us 
and to draw us near and hold us close and love us anyway. It's not an everyday psalm, the committee was saying by the addition of that prescript about David's acquaintance with rock bottom, but it's the one you need when you need it. And if we'd left it out, well, we wouldn't have told the whole truth about being human before God. By reading Psalm 51 tonight, alongside the account of Absalom's death in 2 Samuel 18, 19, another even harder truth emerges from the biblical testimony concerning David, our ancestor, and it's this. In some sense, David's whole life could be narrated as a series of personal relational failings. And as a corollary, his personal relational failings tracked with the religio-political catastrophe of the nation he ruled as king. Let's widen the lens and rewind through some years so you can see what I mean. When we last spoke of the Israelites last Sunday night, they had just been granted that new name, Israelites, by God, to match their new situation, liberation from Egyptian enslavement with Moses in the lead, on their way to a land they could call their own. That they would displace countless non-Israelite persons to take that land is a problem for us as we learn to take seriously the historic and continuing displacement of indigenous peoples, a sin for which our own nation has not repented and from which we have not recovered. But it was not a problem for the Israelites, whose geopolitical context was one of constant warring between small kingdoms winning and losing territory all the time, each believing themselves destined for dominance under the watchful eye of their respective gods. As the story goes, our god enters that tournament with the ragtag band of former slaves as god's army and emerges victorious gaining fame far and wide as more powerful and more present than any little g-god the world had known theretofore. Israel thus self-identifies as the collective recipient of the promises made to their forebears, to Abram and Sarai, the ones who originally risked everything in hopes that their descendants would prosper in exactly this way. Their prosperity is the fulfillment of God's faithfulness over hundreds of years and countless generations of waiting, perhaps we can grant that their narration of land and people conquering is theologically faithful given their context, if not meant to be emulated in ours. When Israel moved into their new digs, the governance was light. Land was apportioned fairly to family groups, and by design, everyone had enough. Wise judges were appointed to adjudicate any disputes. The only royalty to which they paid tribute was God's own self, their sovereign and lord and protector. The shalom of that season 
was short-lived, however. The reasons were many, but one way to say it is, it's spiritually dangerous to settle down. Moses had predicted as much. In his farewell address to Israel, just before they crossed over the Jordan River to their new home, he warned them, don't forget, when you harvest those crops you did not plant and draw water from those wells you did not dig and take shelter in houses you did not build, you'll be grateful at first, but soon the memory of God's provision will fade and you'll start to imagine that your success is the product of your own up-by-the-bootstraps pulling. You'll start to think you deserve what you've got and more. Gratitude will wither on the grapevine you did not train, and you'll be hungry, greedy for more than you've been given. Be oh so careful, Moses told the people. Don't forget. In short, they forgot. Over time, Israel became discontent with the immortal, invisible, God-only wise as their sovereign. They clamored for a king that they could see and, TBH, manipulate. They demanded an army not only for defense but for the conquest of more territory to call their own. They agreed to taxation of their workaday wealth in order to raise that professional military. They left behind the celebration of quiet shalom, the peace-filled state of everyone having enough and instead raised their glasses to the violent acquisition of more and more and more. They sought leaders who would feed their hunger. When they got David, they were sure they'd hit the jackpot. Never mind that David's way to the throne was paved with bodies, the casualties of his own hungers. He feuded incessantly with his predecessor, Saul, falling in love with Saul's son, Jonathan, but marrying Saul's daughter, Michael. Saul and Jonathan both died making war for Israel, and David wailed his grieving songs for both of them, even while he claimed their throne for himself, the power he had schemed for years to take. No grief, not even for Jonathan the one whose love was more precious to him than the love of any woman, including his numerous wives and concubines, would keep David from the power he felt he deserved. Because David was a taker. He set his eye on what he wanted and set about getting it no matter the cost. The deaths by his hand or by his command were too many to count, but the Israelites who loved him sang a little ditty that says a lot about him and about them. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. The fantastic body count was to David's advantage in this new math of geopolitical, militaristic domination of neighbor. One way we could say it is, God fulfilled God's promise to Abraham, a promise of land and descendants, a promise of a prosperous future. 
And out of that fulfillment, Abraham's descendants built an empire. Well, they tried. They emulated their neighboring nation states in covetousness. They sacrificed to their own shalom in constant warfare and increasing taxation. They meant to make a name for themselves that would be above every name. God's name? Eh, not so much. But the name of Israel. They hoped the world would shudder in fear when they heard it. The Hebrew Bible tells these stories with intense honesty. Stories of kings and conquerings, Israel's ascent to power, and their painful descent. As in their craven quest, they turned on each other, sibling against sibling in civil war, and their ultimate defeat and loss of the land they loved. And interwoven with the broad history of the nation are the personal stories of its people, especially its leaders, especially David. In a way, David's family saga is a microcosm of the broad tragedy of the nation he ruled. Oh, they got the king they deserved. Or he got the kingdom he deserved. Whichever way you want to look at that. Because violence and heartache did not leave David's side when he acquired the throne he so badly wanted. We know the story of Bathsheba's rape and her husband's murder. But can we also pause to remember David's daughter, Tamar, say her name? This Tamar, named for another used and abused Tamar among their ancestors, you might remember. This Tamar's half-brother, Amnon, wanted what he should not have, but took it anyway, take after dad much, tricking her, raping her, then turning on her. Tamar descended into the trauma of survival. Her full brother, Absalom, begged their father to punish Amnon, but when David, preferring false peace to true justice, turned a blind eye to his daughter's pain, Absalom took matters into his own hands. Absalom murdered Amnon or rather had the men under his command do it, take after dad much. Then he fled from his father's anger, lived in exile for some years, and when Absalom finally came home, there was no reconciliation. David would not see him. So Absalom began quietly campaigning to take his father's throne by force, gathering support until he had a rebel army sufficient to overtake David's few remaining loyalists. Upon learning of Absalom's impending insurrection, David fled Jerusalem to hide in the badlands east of the Jordan River, a posture he knew quite well from all his years on the run from Saul, whose throne he had sought to overthrow. In this new nightmare, David's army went to war against his son's army. Absalom's insurrection was defeated, and Absalom himself murdered 
ruthlessly on the battlefield when David's general deemed surrender too merciful a fate for a seditious son. And here we are, witnessing the intensity of David's grief for his son. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, oh Absalom, my son, my son. Interpreters of this story have long understood that David's cries are not only about the loss of Absalom, but a recognition that his personal loss is entangled with tragedy on a larger scale. The fouled idea of one nation under God, the lasting consequences of greed-fueled violence, the devolution of Israel's highest ideals as they grasped for more than they had been promised in the first place. See William Faulkner's American Civil War tragedy, Absalom, Absalom. See also Cry the Beloved Country, Alan Payton's family saga set in South Africa's apartheid. And we, what are we to gain by soaking ourselves in the pathos of David's personal and political catastrophes? What new theological understanding is available to us by our labors here? What do we know now of God that we did not know before? Consider the interplay between David's context and David's self. By including so much of David's story within Israel's history, our ancestors in faith meant for us to contemplate what it is to be a singular person within the community of a people and to be known by God in both these ways. In David's lament over Absalom, we recognize our own split consciousness, the realization that we are at the same time individually responsible for our own decision-making with full moral agency to align our lives with God's own will, and we are involuntarily carried along in the swift, strong current of the circumstances of our birth. For example, I am personally responsible to repent of and weed out every little sprig of racism in my individual heart and simultaneously, inextricably bound up in the whiteness I was born in and the systemic racism that preserves white privilege to my benefit even now. You could say that I was conceived in sin I was born guilty. And you could say that it breaks my heart again and again and again, as it must. And lest you think I forgot that God is the capital P protagonist of the Bible and that preaching is the only appropriate genre for the usage of the word lest, God meets my double consciousness, my personal self and my political positioning with truth-telling and with mercy. 
God did it for all the kings of Israel, sent prophets directly to their throne rooms to confront their personal wrongheadedness and their participation in systemic injustices. Even within the constraints of context, there were always choices to be made, the prophets said, speaking for God. Nobody has to take more than their fair share. Nobody has to give in to their hunger for what's not theirs to consume. You choose who to be within the circumstances of your birth. Sometimes you choose wrong. Sometimes the current of context is too strong. Sometimes someone you love ends up badly hurt. Sometimes the suffering you did not even mean to cause comes home to your own heart. And God says, when that happens, I'm still right here. I haven't moved. I'm not going anywhere. Whoever you've become, whatever you've done, whatever has been done to you, you are mine and I am yours. On your worst day, at your lowest point, you cannot stop me being true to you. That's how somebody like David could write a song, pray a prayer, like the 51st Psalm. He knew who he was. And he knew what Israel had become. And he knew better than anybody that the fulfillment of God's promise was about more than land, more than prosperity. It was always about God's steadfast, faithful presence with people who had not been steadfast or faithful to each other or to God. God does not go anywhere. God just waits for us to come back around with Psalm 51 on our lips, crying for our Absaloms, all that we've lost, all that's been taken from us, all that we've taken from somebody else. And because we know David's whole sad, sordid story, we can know what David knew. God stays, God waits, God knows, God loves, still. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.